Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, you probably recall your grandmother, my mother, saying, get your education because that's the one thing they can't take away from you. And she was right. Education, like voting, is a valuable commodity. We know that through history. Black African-Americans have consistently been prevented from getting an education and voting. Yes, those things were definitely stressed to all of us, which lets me know that voting and one's education are very valuable tools in one's arsenal. You're exactly right, my dear niece. I've always said whenever someone tries to uh, really, really hard to keep you from doing something, take a close look at what it is. There's probably power behind it. In fact, that's the reason in most pre-Civil War Southern states, it was illegal to educate enslaved people. More than anything, enslavers feared an educated slave. Education could lead to escape and rebellion. For example, literate slaves would be able to forge a pass, they could write inciting materials, or they could read laws. Exactly. The last thing enslavers wanted was an educated population who they had abused and tortured. Yes, yes, that is right. And I have a story to illustrate just that. On September 9th, 1739, a literate enslaved person named Jimmy led what was called the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina, which resulted in the deaths of 25 colonists and between 35 and 50 enslaved Black people. South Carolina reacted with the Negro Act of 1740, which made it illegal for enslaved Americans to assemble in groups, earn money, or learn to write. This act was copied by many other states, include, including some Northern ones, and every colony or state after the Revolutionary War had some form of slave code or Black code preventing Black enslaved children from attending public school. So as in as inciting and as interesting as that is, what does that have to do with our episode today on historically black colleges and universities, or as some call them, HBCUs? Good question. HBCUs and schools at every other level of education for black African-American children formed because there was no place else for them to go. Systemic racism at work again. Remember the episode we did on educating K-12 children? Well, that story and history of HBCUs are intertwined. Now, I think those two would be great companion episodes. Yes, they would. Now, if our listeners haven't heard of that episode, I hope they will check out our website. Now, many peg the beginning of historically Black colleges and universities with the founding of what is now known as Cheney University in 1837, and that was 28 years before the Civil War ended. Enslaved people had been running schools undercover pre-Civil War, though, and these 
schools emerged quickly after the war ended. So technically, even though Cheney University is considered the first HBCU, there was a lot of education and a lot of schooling going on underground before that time. Now, the first students at these HBCUs were formerly enslaved people, many of them illiterate. The schools were designed to provide the job skills appropriate for the times and to produce teachers. Various church denominations, mainly white ones, helped found many of the early HBCUs. The United Church of Christ, Presbyterian, and American Baptist Church, and the American Missionary Association were instrumental in the founding of several HBCUs. The Catholic Church got in on the game in 1925 with its founding of Xavier in New Orleans. Now, the African Methodist Episcopal, or AME, church helped establish several schools, including Wilberforce in 1856, which was the first school owned and operated by Black African Americans. The AME Church also established what is now Edward Waters College, Morris Brown College, and the Paul Quinn College, among others. Very true. The AME Church has always been one of the staunchest supporters of educating the African American population post slavery. It was, and we're grateful for their efforts. But it wasn't always an easy go for these schools. The institutions that got off the ground were subject to violence as well. For example, in Virginia, St. Paul's College fought off attacks from the Ku Klux Klan, and part of the Wilberforce University campus was destroyed by a mysterious fire. Now, given these facts, I believe the story you've brought us today deals with a little-known but important violent episode that happened at and was perpetrated against an HBCU. Yes, I do, Ann Carol. Although many students and alumni cite the feeling of family, community, and safety among the reasons besides an education that they chose to attend an HBCU, unfortunately, these hallowed institutions are not immune to violence, usually at the hands of the community that they're in. Now, many of our listeners may have heard of the tragic student shooting at the hands of police in Mississippi at Jackson State University in 1970, where two students died and 12 were injured. But nearly two years earlier in 1968, another student massacre took place, and it's considered one of the most violent episodes during the civil rights era, although the rema- although it remains relatively unknown. Mm, that's interesting. What's it called? It's called the Orangeburg Massacre, and it happened in February of 1968. So to put that in perspective, you may have been about 15 or 16 high school age. Is that right, Carol? That is right. That would have been about that age in 1968. And even more mind-blowing for me, my parents would have been 18 or 19, respectively. So to think of all of you as teenagers while this is going on just puts so much in perspective. Now, also, the Tet Offensive and the assassination of MLK would would happen in this year as well. But let's give our listeners a little bit of a refresher of how we got to where we are in Orangeburg in 1968. 
Now, if you'll all remember, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act brought an end to segregation across the nation. And as much as people hoped and some people believe that it instantly changed everything, as soon as it was signed, boom, everything was integrated. But that was not the case, especially not at the all-star bowling triangle bowling alley in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Now, the bowling alley owner, Harry Floyd, claimed that local leaders had tried to speak to him about desegregating his establishment, but he refused. He said it's a private business, and honestly, deep down, he did not want to offend his longtime white clientele. Now, here's where uh, Mr. Floyd had things a little bit twisted. He was in the vicinity of two HBCUs, South Carolina State and Kaplan State, which made the population of Orangeburg, South Carolina, very black, very educated and very motivated. These students had been tested in the fires of the civil rights movement, and they knew the power of peaceful protest and civil disobedience. They were determined to turn the tide of racism within their small college town. Now, on February 5th, 1968, a small group of students from SC State and Kathleen went to the bowling lanes to protest its white-only policy. Floyd asked them to leave, and they did so without incident. But soon other students learned, and they were ready to lend a hand. On February 6th, an even larger crowd arrived at the bowling alley in protest. As a sign of intimidation, the police arrived with the fire department, threatening to beat back the protesters with fire hoses, a tactic often used by Southern police forces during the civil rights marches. And we have seen those uh, black and white newsreels several times of children and adults uh, being sprayed during protest. Mm, now, in yeah, that water was painful and it caused a lot of damage. A lot, a lot of damage. Now, these college students were not going to be turned away. In defiance, they lit matches and lighters and threw them at the firefighters. They mm. were not going to be scared away by fire hoses. Now, the, it was the sound of breaking glass that uh, caused the police to, to be in fear for their lives. So they began beating students, male and female, with billy clubs. Now, a protester, an eyewitness by the name of of Emma McCain later recalled, and I quote, I remember feeling a sense of pain where they started beating me. It was almost like they were trying to teach me a lesson or something. We were all unarmed. Now, by the night's end, 15 students had been arrested and at least 10 and one police officer had to be treated for injuries. Wow, this got pretty violent pretty fast. Pretty fast. And remember, it was not the students who started the violence. Now, once again, word spread quickly about the bowling alley unrest and enraged students were not afraid. Uh, but the neighborhood was escalating tensions in, on, in Orangeburg and the expectation of looting and violence had some store owners arming themselves and boarding up their property. Now, the state's governor, Robert McNair, who supposedly was one of the moderate governors of the Deep South, painted a narrative that we might be familiar with. Mm 
It was black power leaders who were infiltrating the university student body, and they insisted that it was the black power movement inciting the, the unrest and, and not the neighborhood and not the good black kids that went there. It was the black power movement. Oh, the old outside agitator argument. Oh, yeah. So it just changed. It could be Antifa. It could be Black Lives Matter. It's a black power movement. It could be you or me, but they've infiltrated their small town and and we have to fight back with the National Guard. Now they were called in with tanks all to intimidate and squelch the students anticipated violence. And the arrival of a famous black leader did not help. His name was Cleveland Sellers, and he was a known civil rights activist. But he knew nothing about what was going on at the bowling alley. He had just come back to South Carolina, where he was from, after graduating from Howard University in 1967. His goal was to teach students about black history and at and activism. But because of his former uh, work with the civil rights movement, the government's radar was on his back and he was labeled a black militant. Mm, It sounds like somebody who was probably in those FBI files that we talked about in one of our episodes. Oh, yes. Now, by the night of February the 8th, tensions were on high in Orangeburg. The students were now joined by sellers who, you know, definitely joined the fight because that's what what he did. Um, But they all gathered on the South Carolina State's campus, ready to protest racial racial segregation at the bowling alley and other privately owned establishments. Now, an overly zealous, overly armed local law enforcement Uh, police force led by police chief Pete Strom along with the National Guard had been ordered by the governor to keep the students on campus and to quell any riots now that night the students had started a large large bonfire in front of the campus in entrance now they were singing songs and taunting law enforcement throwing rocks and objects at them now eventually the fire uh, the i'm sorry the police chief ordered that the fire be put out and that's when things turned ugly oh boy Courtney, I lived through some college protests in my day, so this is deja vu for me. But it sounds like a dangerous situation is about to get deadly. So let's take a break and take a breather. Then we'll hear how this all turns out. Okay, we're back. But before you finish, and we have a chance to hear this story of doom and gloom, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to learn more about systemic racism, like the situation we're describing, or to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It, or to catch up on any of our old podcasts, you can catch us at this link, podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com. Now, Courtney, I'm anxious to hear what happened after the bonfire had been set. Well, when we left off, the students were in the front of the campus with their large bonfire, singing songs and taunting the authority figures and the establishment, as one would do in that time period. And the firefighters had been ordered to put out the bonfire that the students had set. 
Now, while they were extinguishing the fire, somehow a police officer claimed that a heavy wooden banister hit him in the head, and then someone screamed out, shots fired, and the massacre began. The police Mm. officers began firing indiscriminately into the crowd of students. Now, when the shooting had stopped, three students were dead. A college freshman, Sammy Hammond, had been shot in the back. A 17-year-old student named Delano Middleton, whose mother worked at uh, South Carolina State and had he had nothing to do with the protest, had been shot seven, seven times. Mm. An 18-year-old by the name of Henry Smith had been shot three times, and at least 27 protesters had been shot and wounded mostly in the back, buttocks, and sides as they were trying to run away. But the aftermath and subsequent cover-up would make things so much worse. Now, among the wounded was civil rights activist Cleveland Sellers, who, despite having been shot in the armpit, was arrested while still in the hospital. He was charged with inciting a riot and he lended validity to the Black Power agitators narrative that the governor was trying to spin. Oh, so he's in the hospital wounded. He didn't start any of this, but he's now been blamed. He has now been blamed. Now, sadly, stories, news stories of the Orangeburg massacre were completely ignored by news outlets who were covering the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, which is a large historical event on a world scale. So I do understand that. But for a massacre of unarmed college students to be ignored was pretty bad. But even worse, in the cases of the Associated press they just reported the story wrong they describe it as a shootout between students and the police a shootout the students didn't have any guns the students had no guns and that's what caused the black community of south carolina around orangeburg and other surrounding uh neighborhoods and cities in South Carolina to protest at the Capitol. They were sick of the portrayal of these students being armed rioters, and they led several protests to the state Capitol. Even Martin Luther King Jr. sent a telegram to President Lyndon B. Johnson stating that the deaths in Orangeburg would lie on the conscience of Police Chief Strom and the government of South Carolina. As well it should. Very much so. Now, 70 police officers were there that night, but only nine were brought up on charges and all of them were acquitted. This is a familiar story. Yes. But Cleveland Sellers, the man who had just come to teach in his own home state, would be sentenced to a year in prison. Even though both black and white residents of the states were of the state and city were aware of the massacre, nobody stepped up or said anything. And it was rarely taught in school. So you have a man who was sent to prison for a year, police officers that just got off for with no charges and a city and state who would not talk about the massacre of unarmed college students. It wasn't until 2003 when the then governor of South Carolina wrote a letter of apology in the name of racial healing that it was brought back to people's remembrance. Now, in 2006, Cleveland Sellers' son, Bakari Sellers, was elected to the South Carolina state legislature. 
Now, he spoke with emotion at uh, South Carolina State for a memorial service for the people that were lost in the massacre. And he was quoted as saying in his speech, we join here today in our own memorial to remember the three dead and 27 injured and yet another massacre that marked yet another people's struggle against oppression. These men were not martyrs to a dream, but soldiers to a cause. Oh, Courtney, that is so well put. So well put. And now, as a teenager, when the Orangeburg massacre happened, um, I was in high school, and I also vividly remember shooting uh, the shooting that occurred in Kent State, where four white students had been killed by the National Guard. And I definitely remember that. But until we did the research for this episode, what happened at South Carolina State was just a blip on my radar screen. Sadly, though, that is often the case involving Black African-Americans who face violence and death in America. In fact, haven't we been talking about doing an episode on the history of Black African-American massacres in this country? We have, and sadly, massacres seem to go hand in hand with both Black achievement, excellent, and excellence in history. So that's definitely an episode we need to explore. It is indeed. So listeners, stay tuned. Now, Although the Orangeburg Massacre is an extreme example of mistreatment at HBCUs, every HBCU has had to deal with other types of threats, too. Uh, They may have been racial, like this one, financial, or political. Some 15 HBCUs, for example, have closed since 1997. They were pressured by those who no longer think them relevant, refused to fund them, or placed arbitrary barriers on granting them accreditation. Ouch. And that's something potential students look at. Accreditation is a big deal when choosing a school. But despite those challenges, how have HBCUs excelled? Well, they have, Courtney. They definitely have. Despite being underfunded and sometimes under assault, HBCUs have produced outstanding students. In their earliest years, they were the source of Black scholars, doctors, and lawyers. In fact, they were the only source. They were the feeder schools, not only to Black medical schools like Meharry and Howard, but also to the most renowned medical schools in the nation. The best uh, graduates of HBCUs were at least equivalent to students from predominantly white institutions across the country. For example, HBCUs have historically important distinguished alumni, including Martin Luther King Jr., Thurgood Marshall, Langston Hughes, Ralph Ellison, Zora Neale Hurston, John Lewis, Booker T. Washington, and John Hope Franklin. Now, that is an amazing list that anyone should be proud to be a part of. As well, they should. But let me tell you this, there are also some others that maybe we don't know quite as well. My favorite one of the lesser known graduates of an HBCU that kids all over America should thank for hours of fun is Lonnie Johnson. He's a Tuskegee University graduate who received a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a master's in nuclear engineering. But his most his biggest claim to fame is he holds more than 120 patents, including the patent for the Super Soaker water gun, one of the world's best-selling toys. And at this time, all 80s and 90s kids would love to salute Mr. Johnson for many unforgettable summer 
moment. I, Thank you. I recall <laughs> a few of those myself, you and your cousin, Sean, getting drenched with one of those soakers. Now, another notable HBCU graduate is Marion Wright Edelman from Spelman College. She is one of my favorite HBCU alums because of her connection to our family in a kind of roundabout way. She helped establish the Head Start program where my sister, your aunt, has worked for many years. Edelman has advocated for disadvantaged Americans all of her professional life and is president and founder of the Children's Defense Fund. She's a graduate of Yale Law School and was the first Black woman admitted to the Mississippi Bar. I love when we can connect personally and professionally with the legacy of HBCUs and their graduates. So many of us have been put in positions um, and started our careers based on the achievements of these graduates. We have indeed. Another area that I don't think many people consider is the entertainment industry. Now, for moviegoers, and you may think I'm going to start naming some famous Black actors that went to HBCUs, and there really are, but moviegoers may have been thrilled by the intellectual prowess of another HBCU graduate, Katherine Johnson, who is depicted in the film Hidden Figures. Johnson graduated from West Virginia State University, majoring in math and, get this, French. Now, a mathematician and NASA employee, Katherine Johnson's calculations of orbital mechanics were critical to the success of the first and subsequent U.S. manned space flights. I really love that movie. And that is awesome that she is an HBCU graduate. And you know, I cannot miss an opportunity to shout out a superhero. Chadwick Boseman, who unfortunately lost in 2020, not only played several African-American icons who went to HBCUs, um, but just to name a few, James Brown, Jackie Robinson, Thurlka Marshall, may be best known worldwide to fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as none other king of Wakanda, Chichala, a.k.a. the Black Panther, he was a graduate of Howard University. Well, that's a well-deserved shout-out, Courtney. His talent, yes, will be missed. Now, here's someone else who was talented that I love to talk about is Barbara Charlene Jordan. She graduated from Texas Southern University and majored in political science and history. Jordan was a lawyer, educator, politician, and leader in the civil rights movement. She has an impressive list of firsts in her biography. She was the first African-American elected to the Texas Senate after Reconstruction, the first Southern African-American woman elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, and the first woman to deliver a keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. That's a lot of firsts. That's a lot of achievements. It is. It is. She was an amazing individual, brilliant in many, many ways. Now, this entire episode could have been about notable HBCU graduates, period. For example, there's a host of entertainers and celebrities who graduated from HBCUs, including Sean Puffy Combs, Taraji P. Henson, Keisha Knight-Pulliam, Samuel L. Jackson, Oprah Winfrey, and Erica Badu. And I think that last person has a connection from you to an HBCU. <laughs> yes, Erica Badu attended the school where I taught. Now, we've saved the best for last, I think, Aunt Carol. Vice President Kamala Harris, graduate of Howard University. Yep, that is the best and definitely not the last. 
Vice President Harris has brought the spotlight to HBCUs and their significant contributions to this country's brain trust. It is just magnificent to see her in that role. So this brings up an important question. Since segregation and racial discrimination are arguably prohibited under law and all American colleges and universities are integrated to some degree, people are still wondering why are HBCUs still necessary? That is an excellent question, my dear niece. But here's a part of the answer. The results speak for themselves. The nation's HBCUs make up just 3% of America's colleges and universities, yet they produce 20% of Black African-American graduates and 25% of Black African-American graduates in the STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Also, they generally cost up to 30% less than comparable predominantly white institutions, and they serve a population who might otherwise be unable to afford college. Almost 80% of HBCU students receive federal loans. Well, that answers that question very succinctly. Now, I hope this episode is a highlight to HBCUs for those looking to continue their education or just wanted to open the door about learning about these illustrious halls of education. I agree with you, Courtney, because not only do those schools offer an opportunity for an education and to do it at a less, way less the cost of predominantly white institutions, many of the graduates from those schools will tell you there is a wealth of intangibles beyond the academic side of an HBCU. They believe they instill the responsibility of giving back because they produce leaders. They see these schools as safe havens where students can discover who they are as opposed to having to fit in or feel unwelcome. HBCUs are and were the response to racism and their legacy must live on. I agree. HBCUs must be protected and honored for what they've not only given to the African-American community, the United States as a whole, but the population of the world. But in the meantime, Aunt Carol, our listeners can look forward to episodes on Black love for Valentine's Day, as well as sports and many other topics coming down the pipeline. But if you've missed the episode, you can always find every single episode, including the new ones, on our on our website, podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com. You can send us a tweet on Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. Follow us on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry and give us a like on our Why Are They So Angry fan page at Why Are They So Angry. Well, I'm looking forward to our next episodes coming up, but until then, thanks for listening. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.